Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello and welcome to a new episode of New Books in Islamic Studies. I'm your host, Sher Ali Tareen. For each new episode, we choose an important new book in the field of Islamic studies and we chat with its author. In his remarkable new book, Aisha's Cushion, Religious Art, Practice and Perception in Islam, Jamal Ilyas, Professor of Religious Studies at the University of Pennsylvania, presents a magisterial study of Muslim attitudes towards visual culture, images and perception. Through meticulous historical and textual analysis, Elias successfully unravels the stereotype that there is no place for visual images in Islam or that calligraphy represents the only normative form of art in Islam. He shows that throughout history, Muslims have approached the question of images and art in a much more nuanced and complicated fashion, while negotiating important philosophical, theological and perceptual considerations. He argues that Muslim thinkers have developed systematic and advanced theories of representation and signification, and that many of these theories have been internalized by Islamic society at large and continue to inform cultural attitudes towards the visual arts. What is most unusual about this book is the almost overwhelming range and varieties of sources that Elias marshals to construct his argument. The reader of this book travels through a glittering arcade of intellectual histories, populated by texts on philosophy, Sufism, alchemy, dreams, optics, and architecture and monuments. This painstakingly researched and lyrically written book is sure to delight the intellectual palate of specialists and non-specialists alike. Here now is my conversation with Jamal Ilyas. Hello, Jamal. How are you doing? I'm doing very, very well, Sherali. How are you? Very good. Uh, thank you so much, Jamal, for your time. And as I was saying before we went on, air that, uh, you know, a brilliant book and such a stunningly uh, multifaceted book, which goes into all directions and topics in exploring the question of religious art and perception and practice in Islam. So it was quite a thrill reading this book and really look forward to our discussion. So thank you for your time. Well, thank you. My pleasure. And thank you for the kind words about the book. So we have a tradition on new books in Islamic studies that we always begin with the question of uh, the journey of our author uh, in terms of how they became a scholar of Islamic studies uh, so to you, it would be a two-part question. One would be, uh, how did you uh, become a scholar of Islam? What is the story of your uh, becoming a scholar of Islamic studies? And secondly, how did you get to write this particular project? Okay, well, that is a two-part question because the journey at this point is getting longer by the day. Um, so yes, yeah, so basically the first part is actually uh, relatively short. Um, and that is that um, I, you know, I grew up in Pakistan. I stayed, I was there until the end of high school. Uh, and as you well know, uh, Pakistan, like many other developing countries, when you actually, you know, if you're good in school, you are discouraged from being in the humanities and you're encouraged to go into the sciences, which is what I did. And I came to the U.S. to study um, under those, under that scheme. And actually, um, it's distribution requirements. I had always been interested in history and in poetry. I used to paint as a kid. And um, I... Um, I was very keen at some level on um, 
on studying the humanities, but it was distribution requirements uh, as an undergraduate that forced me, not forced me, but encouraged me to actually take classes. And I took classes in religion and I became so fascinated by it that I actually studying it more. So, so that was the inter- sort of becoming in the humanities and in the religious studies. And the study of Islam um, actually was uh, because, and this is just a sad commentary on our times that I, um, you know, again, growing up, uh, just, just the public. I mean, I grew up in um, the. I grew up basically in the Zia years in Pakistan, when, when uh, religion had really become this kind of frequently oppressive public presence in politics and in public life. And uh, you just didn't see much of sort of like the beauty of. And also, it became part of education. And to come to college and study uh, courses in Islam and realize the breadth, the depth, the richness, the beauty of actually Islamic thought, culture, etc., etc. I mean, things that, you know, you and I, obviously, and everyone probably would ever listen to this or well aware of, um, was such an eye-opener that I just thought I had to keep doing this. And that's how I fell into this as a career. So that's part one of your um, your question. The second part is um, what the journey has been to get to this book. Basically, I started out, uh, you know, with the good old-fashioned tra- training in um, in philology, and uh, I was very, I continue to be very, very interested in sort of Sufi thought and metaphysics, and um, that's how I started out. And um, as I've gone along, I've become more interested in sort of broader questions of uh, social and historical construction and how changes occur and also very much so in um, what one can how, what can one recover in a sense or try and recover about the religious lives of um, um, for lack of better terms ordinary people people who don't write books um, in the uh, past in the time period when we don't have artifacts about them so this is in a sense for me a big intellectual challenge and that is partially addressed in this book although in my opinion uh to speak honestly, I'm not satisfactorily in my sense. So that's the journey. So let's begin with the title of the book, uh, which is Aisha's Cushion. And then it has a subheading of religious art perception and practice in Islam. But what does Aisha's Cushion refer to? And how does this title relate to the broader themes and objectives of this book? So that refers to a very famous hadith, which is found in, in several of the of the canonical Sunni collections, including Bukhari, um, in which there are very various variations on this hadith, which I actually kind of address because there's a point to it. Um, but what it is is that ultimately um, uh, Aisha had gotten a tapestry. That's let's say it's the commonest version of this hadith. She had gotten a tapestry which had birds on it or some sort of scene with birds on it. And the prophet came home and he saw this tap- tapestry and he asked, you know, he was sort of like taken aback. Um, and he asked her what this was. And she said, it's just a tapestry. Um, and so he asked her to get, to take it down. And so she cut it up and made pillows out of it. She made cushions out of it. And uh, he didn't object to them. And so that's hadith I take as sort of that's, you know, that's the starting point of the book because it sort of, it, it um, kind of encapsulates one of the central pieces of the book, which is that uh, it's not exactly about images or the lack of images uh, in sort of religious constructions of Islam and imagery, but it's actually partially about their usage. So reconfigured, so as a tapestry hanging on a wall in a complete form, uh, this was problematic, but reconfigured into uh, cushions, which, you know, perhaps utilitarian, but perhaps the images were cut up. We don't know. Then it's not objectionable anymore. So before we get to the specific themes and topics uh, that come up in this book, 
let us begin with the larger methodological approach that you bring to the study of images and so on. Uh, so what is the, uh, broadly speaking, the kind of approach that you adopt in studying images and how does it differ from other approaches that we find in different disciplines in studying okay. icons and images? Well, I mean, first, I, uh, it's, I, I try and bring in a lot of methodological approaches. My own scholarship, I mean, honestly, I, I never consider myself someone who actually generates theory, meaning maybe I do generate theory, but I don't consider myself one who generates theory. I actually consume theory and then apply it to data. So I'm actually, you know, I use many different approaches in this book. Ultimately, it's a book of intellectual history. And so in as much as, uh, you know, when you actually look at sort of, you know, history as a subject or religious history and material history as a subject, um, you can bring to bear a variety of models on it. So in that sense, um, uh, it's, you know, overarchingly an intellectual history project, but it brings together things from art history, from material history, psychology, um, a variety a variety of, uh, of, of methods, and including ones that I'm very partial to, which is sort of anthropological theory of objects uh, and visual theory, um, theories. All of these are obviously in the plural. Um, but yeah, there's no overarching singular theory that, that, that it brings up. So in as much as you could think of it as a more synthetic work or another way of looking at it as a disorganized work, it brings up a whole different bunch of theories, uh, so that I presume, you know, it's like no one person who's committed to a particular disciplinary approach, uh, might feel it was appropriate to do all those things, but that perhaps is the uniqueness of this project. Uh, so before we get to uh, the case of Islam and the question of images, uh, continuing on this question of the kind of approach that you bring to this book, uh, you mention and you make an argument uh, in one of your earlier chapters, uh, in the conclusion of one of your earlier chapters, uh, where you write, and I quote here, that it is the affective relationships rather than any formal mimetic visual qualities that are the ultimate determinants of the value of a religious image. So, can you explain the statement a bit on how you uh, conceive of the question of affective relationships uh, of images and how it connects with how you approach the idea of representation of religious images in different traditions? Okay. First, I want to say that was a very dense sentence. And if you hadn't told me, you sent it to me in writing before, I wouldn't be able to answer this question. But that being said... um, There is the issue that, so basically what I'm trying to say when I say something like that is that uh, when we, you know, it's like sort of an object and an an image that that represents its object, we shouldn't get tied down uh, with the question of resemblance theory. So not resemblance theory per se, but even resemblance um, in the sense that because the notion of does A resemble B is a highly subjective um, um, kind of conclusion and attitude, which is based in lots of complex conventions of what representation and uh, accurate representation actually are. Um, and I'll give you an example of that. So, for example, you know, when I say that, you know, you say that my driver's license picture resembles me. Um, well, it doesn't really resemble me. Because when you think of it in one sense, we can say it resembles me because it's my picture. And we have these conventions that accept that photographs, driver's license photographs, however horrible they might be, resemble uh, the person uh, whose photograph it is. However, you know, in certain, if you look at it from a different perspective, it doesn't resemble me at all. For one thing, it's two-dimensional. I'm three-dimensional. It's uh, only a head. I have a whole body. Uh, It's also, it's this tiny thing like an inch and a half by an inch and a half or whatever and uh, whereas you know I'm like a person uh, and so 
uh, this notion that, you know, it's, it's because of certain conventions that we say that that picture resembles me. But if we shift the conventions, it doesn't resemble me at all. So that's what I'm tr- – so the one side is don't get hung up on mimesis, meaning on resemblance issues. It's really what the picture does. Like well, that's what's sort of an affective relationship in the sense that it doesn't mean that the picture itself actually acts. But within a human context, within a social context, it's an issue of it when people – think that an object is in a relationship with uh, a prototype, with the thing that it represents, what is that relationship of that perceived, that understood, uh, what is the nature of that perceived and understood relationship and how does it work? That's really where representation becomes an interesting issue, at least for me. So before we get to uh, the case of Islam, one of the things that I found particularly fascinating in this book is that you connect the study of Islam or the you know place of images in Islam and so on with other religious traditions and we get a very broad comparative sense of this particular topic. And you especially discuss the uh, specter of idolatry, which you mentioned was something which was uh, seen as threatening or otherwise in different traditions. So what were some of the major forms of argument through which idolatry uh, has been rebuked or defended, for that matter, in different traditions. And how has that discourse around idolatry been implicated in the construction of identity and difference, which is another theme that you uh, discuss uh, in some depth? Yeah, well, I mean, for one thing, again, we have to remember that idolatry, the way, even though it might technically be a neutral term, it's a derogatory term. It only gets used in a derogatory term, uh, way in English and European languages. And similarly, it's like, you know, if you take... Uh, the Arabic or the Persian equivalents or other languages, you take their equivalents. Uh, they're also, you know, to, uh, you know, um, it's it's the same. It's well, idolatry literature in literally in Arabic is Abudiyatul Islam. In Persian, it's Butparasti. It's like you know these things. They're never used positively, so no one defends idolatry. That's one thing. But that being said. Uh, it's always it's an accusation that's leveled polemically against people you don't like, um, and uh, frequently. I mean, I think if we if we actually give substance to the logic rather than sort of like this meaningless blanket term, um, it's it's an accusation of two things, and it's an accusation of kind of religious materialism by people who believe in kind of a let's say a disembodied ethereal relationship between human beings and god gods whatever and the other part of it is is actually it's a sign of backwardness um so uh, in that sense and this applies to islam it applies to other religions when they make the accusation of idolatry uh, they're again doing two things one you're just saying you're backward and you're wrong um, and the other part actually is is that you're saying that in a sense by um, worshiping your um, by worshiping deities in material forms, you are actually uh, confusing the nature of the deity that the deity does not reside in the material form, and by you're actually focusing on the material form, you're actually uh, recognizing that it uh, it resides there. Again, like, so, I mean, to give you two examples, one is, is like in medieval times, so in Christian polemics against Muslims and Jews uh, in, throughout the medieval period, um, the accusation against, particularly against Muslims, but both against Muslims and against Jews, was that they were polytheists and they were idolatrous. So this was the Catholic um, kind of objection to Islam and to Judaism. And again, but in their case, so idolatry would mean that you actually, it's not that, uh, it's that, so that Christians obviously and Catholics are Trinitarian. Um, and uh, so they, they created 
Islam and Judaism in their own image, kind of like the evil version of themselves. So they were idolatrous. And what does that mean? Well, they had a trinity, but it was a false trinity. And they worshiped, therefore they worshiped false gods, which was idolatry. But to basically to, to worship God in the Trinity itself, as long as it's the correct God, is not a problem. And similarly, they were false gods, and so their sacrifices, their rituals, all of these to these gods is actually false. The other thing is a modern example, and just from Islam. So, I mean, if we go and we look at um, uh, a lot of, um, for lack of a better term, Salafi groups in the Islamic world today, and I'm talking about the politicized Salafi groups or, or militarized Salafi groups, for lack of a better term, uh, be they in, uh, you know, in, in Mali or, or in Saudi Arabia's government itself or a number of, or right now, uh, Daesh, ISIS, um, uh, is that, you know, there's this kind of this, this notion that uh, you see them going in and, you know, essentially um, either violently or in other ways, Saudi Arabia doesn't do it violently, uh, destroying old buildings that people actually value or cherish. And the logic of that is actually the logic of idolatry, that it actually, and even in the case of Saudi Arabia, taking down, you know, um, buildings that are associated popularly with veneration of the prophet's life and his family's life, what that logic actually is, is that your attachment to this material object constitutes idolatry. And therefore, the right thing to do is actually to remove that uh, material object. Obviously, no um, Shia or Muslim of the kind of the um, veneration sort, you know, Sufi oriented or whatever you want to call it, uh, considers themselves idolatrous. It's just inconceivable to them. Um, Yet that's the logic of that kind of polemical position. So let's now move specifically to the case of Islam. And uh, what are some of the varied and different ways and even conflicting ways in which early and medieval Muslims understood the ideas of icons and images? And uh, in one chapter of your book, you especially narrate a couple of, uh, a number of actually fascinating stories connected with this question. Uh, could you tell us a few in your response? Well, I mean, I think one of the things I was trying to get across in that section was is to make it clear that there's a difference between monotheism and monolatry. Um, and uh, one is obviously believing in one God and the other one is actually worshipping one God. And, uh, the point, and at some level, one could make the argument that um, Islam, is, most of its forms, is monolatric. Not it's more concerned with worship than it is with belief in certain ways. So that, by which I mean to say that there are many, many stories from different points in time in which uh, uh, two things happen. One is, is that you see uh, that uh, it's not that Muslims don't, you know, like, again, this is in stories of the conquest of Mecca, meaning essentially stories of the prophet's life, stories from, you know, medieval Anatolia. There, um, it's not that they're all from, from India, uh, so the conquest of the Indus Valley, uh, there are lots and lots of stories in which they're not saying that essentially idols are not powerful or, or these other gods uh, don't actually have power. What they're saying is they are not the correct god a, or they don't have ultimate power. So they're, power in a, they're powerful in a small way. So that's one thing you see throughout. And the other thing you see, so one that it shows is it shows sort of a relatively complex understanding of um, how gods, demigods, supernatural beings, etc. are worshipped by various people. The second thing is it actually, there are anecdotes which display a fairly complex understanding on the part of Muslims. And we're talking here from the year, roughly the year 800, 850 um, onward through um, 
uh, through kind of Egypt. Uh, so the, the, pre, the, the pre-Mamluk period, the Mamluk period, and also in the case of Anatolia and obviously in India, but in Anatolia throughout the pre-Ottoman period, um, we actually see um, fairly complex understandings of how Christians understand icons, um, particularly Orthodox Christianity. So again, to give a couple of examples from, um, from the book, one is, you know, there's a, uh, you know, there's this very famous Christian physician called Hunayn ibn Ishaq, and um, he was. Uh, there's this very nice uh, story which appears in um, in uh, several different works, but most importantly in the this the big, um, very famous uh, history of uh, of physicians called the Tabaqat al-Atibba, which um, in which he actually uh, so Hunayn gets into this competition uh, with these other uh, Christians. Christian physicians who are working for the caliph and Christian physicians basically trick Hunayn into showing disrespect to an icon of the Virgin Mary. Uh, and when Hunayn shows disrespect to the icon of the Virgin Mary, the caliph punishes Hunayn. Uh, meaning, so the caliph is aware uh, for whatever reason, but what obviously what the anecdote is telling us is, among other things, that the caliph has an awareness of what actually icons represent to Christians. So meaning venerating or not venerating the icon makes you actually, it passes your veneration or lack of veneration to the prototype, in this case, the Virgin Mary. Similarly, there's a really, really interesting anecdote, um, which is in um, in the uh, major biography of uh, uh, Jalaluddin Rumi and his uh, immediate disciples. This is uh, the Manakab al-Arifin by Aflaki. In that, that uh, there's one of, uh, Rumi had this disciple who was actually a Christian. His name was Aynad Dawla. And he was a painter. And Aynad Dawla had heard that there was a uh, really uh, amazing icon of the Virgin and, uh, with a baby Jesus at the monastery in Constantinople, Byzantium in those days, uh, sorry. Um, and um, and uh, so he wanted to go see it. And he made his way to from Konya to this uh, to uh, Byzantium, Istanbul, and uh, worked his way into the confidence of the people in this monastery. And then he finally stole this this icon and he brought it back to um, to uh, to Konya. And he shows it to Rumi, and Rumi talks to him and he says, "You know, it's like the the Mary and the Jesus are are, are in the icon are really upset with you because you eat and sleep and they don't get to eat and sleep." And he says, oh, but they're just a picture. And then he, you know, Rumi gives this complex and intelligent lesson on the nature of icons to uh, to this Christian painter, Ayanadola, displaying, I mean, one, obviously displaying that Malanj al-Din Rumi is a very big deal, but also displaying a fairly complex understanding, certainly on Aflaki, the biographer's part, uh, of the subtleties of the nature of images. And there's several other examples, but two should do for now. So you spent some time discussing how Muslim scholars and even non-scholars understood the ideas of icons and images in other religious traditions also. Uh, so, and especially you focus on the case of Christianity and, and Hindus and so on. So what are some of the variety of ways in which medieval Muslims imagined the use of idols and images among Christians and Hindus? And what kinds of symbolic value did they attach to uh, religious objects and buildings, uh, especially the political sphere that you also discuss in some depth? Well, I think there, um, I mean, sometimes you seldom find, aside from these examples that I've just mentioned, sort of really complex discussions of what the other side, meaning the, the Christians or the Hindus, what they value in their images. You find essentially, ultimately, as you just mentioned, kind of a political um, uh, display almost um, going on. So a political sort of signification uh, being carried out. So 
So both with, uh, in the case of Christians, it's more complex because, of course, um, Muslims, for a variety of reasons, all their own, um, do not consider Christians to be idolatrous. I mean, you know, again, they might consider certain practices to be idolatrous, but by and large, obviously, Christians are are officially people of the book. There's nothing they can really do. You can say that they're actually behaving badly, but categorically, Christians remain people of the book. So they're never really concerned uh, with Christianity itself. With Hinduism, it's actually a little different. Um, in the case of Hinduism, there are lots of stories in the conquest of the Indus Valley, for example, particularly um, of uh, the the kind of uh, the humiliation of idols. Um, which again, and there, and again, this is true of India. You hear this is about Central Asia. You hear about you know. So basically, this is Buddhism. Uh, so that in Afghanistan, in Pakistan, in India, in you know the various countries of Central Asia, there are these stories of actually a the humiliation of um, idols, not just their destruction, and then many stories of actually then they're being taken away as booty and the display of them either in the caliphal capital or in Medina or Mecca. Um, in order to kind of show, they become a they part, become part of the kind of the the wonders of the world, you know, just like they're just freak show items. But also, it's this kind of this conquest and defeat of alternate power structures. Now, returning to the question of Christianity, and this applies obviously to Hinduism too in certain ways, and architecture. Architecture is. Uh, one of the most important ways in which material objects, and this includes idols, this, that, and the other, um, get appropriated within a new religious structure. So in, the, in terms of how architecture materially sub- functions iconically to show defeat, one of the, the, in fact, the most dramatic case perhaps for early Islam, and this has been argued by um, you know, very prominent art historians and architectural historians like Oleg Rabar and uh, Nasser Rabat, is that the reason why the Dome of the Rock was actually built um, was, in a sense, as a victory monument over uh, when when uh, Jerusalem was retaken from uh, Christian rule. So, and the point, of course, being at some level is, is that you know Muslims were well aware that the Solomon's Temple uh, was located on this site, and yet the Christians had not rebuilt it after they had conquered Jerusalem. So, there's almost this gesture of essentially the true religion of God, you know, sort of represented by Judaism, represented by an idealized form of Christianity and in the Muslim imagination, uh, and then represented by Islam. So when Islam comes comes to this site, it's actually reestablishing true godly religion, which of course is the Muslim conception of the religion of Abraham, the religion of Solomon, etc., Suleiman, etc., etc. So um, that's what this monument, so in a sense you can see the Dome of the Rock in some sense as, in its origin, an anti-Christian monument or not necessarily an anti-Christian, but a victory monument, which is why it's round. It doesn't resemble a mosque. It doesn't resemble anything, um, or not round, octagonal, uh, or anything uh, of that sort. So similarly, this kind of, so one is sort of making a building as a victory monument over a space that you're trying to appropriate, reappropriate, whatever. Uh, and the other one is is actually using materials um, in a uh, in a particular way, and so and this is very very true in India, where a lot of temples, so the like idols from temples, but and the structural major structural components of temples would be reused in buildings, and sometimes you know norm, this is very normal, like pillars etc. Large carved stone is extremely expensive, uh, and it gets reused all the time. 
but uh, also sometimes they take like the idol or face of the idol and not just reuse it, but actually reuse it in a way that was was perpetually symbolically important and humiliating to it. So, for example, if we built, it would be a stepping stone. So people would step on the idol or a picture of the idol, a carving of the idol as they walked into the new building. So this is the way kind of um, it gets uh, sort of the polemical symbolic value of uh, of idolatry versus conquest of idolatry plays itself out. So coming back to a broader conceptual theme that you take up in this book, uh, you question a binary between approaching the place of art or uh, visual culture in Islam uh, either through the idea of an aesthetic experience, uh, meaning something that is only valuable for its beauty and for the pleasure of viewing it, versus a religious experience or a salvation experience and so on. And you really try to interrupt this binary of aesthetic versus religious experience and you especially bring into question some of the methods and assumptions of the discipline of art history in that in that uh, line of argument. So could you explain a bit uh, how you do that and how you uh, interrupt that binary? Yeah, I mean, and the first, it's, it's like, you know, there's certain, uh, this is not like, it's not a categorical critique of art history. It's just that obviously art history has used objects more, has studied objects more than other people. So a lot of the um, art historians have studied it, and which is why uh, it's actually important um, to engage art history on, on, on a longitudinal kind of way. So um, that being said, it's that it's not as much kind of a binary between um, aesthetics and the religious but it's between what you might call a pure aesthetic experience and some other kind of experience. Now, the other kind of experience could be, or the other kind of use of a, of a visual object or an art object could actually be utilitarian. But what I'm, so it's like there's, in a sense, and this is Kantian, and it's not just Kantian because many other people have said this, but it's this kind of, you know, sometimes we're supposed to appreciate a beautiful object for its own sake with no purpose. So it's like, you know, there's a difference between you know, me just appreciating a beautiful painting and me appreciating a beautiful painting because it's blue and it matches my couch, uh, which is kind of utilitarian slash aesthetic. And, um, but there's another part to this, which is that, and this is what I'm trying to bring in, is that in, in, in the Islamic case, and this is not unique to Islam, but certainly in, Isla- in the Islamic context, uh, beauty uh, is, is inseparably linked from virtue. Uh, beauty is not a random aesthetic contemplation. And this is obvious for etymological reasons in the sense that both, uh, you know, the words for beauty and goodness, both in the sense of, you know, from the Jamala root, but obviously very, very importantly from the Hasana root. So that, you know, Hasan and Hasan, you know, goodness and beauty and all these sorts of things are very closely related uh, in an Islamic context. And, and there are lots and lots of writings in all kinds of genres which talk about actually true beauty being kind of a moral beauty. Um, and uh, so what I'm trying to at some level inject uh, in this kind of discussion um, and plan to continue hopefully in the future is this kind of, there's a, there's a for lack of, to, to put it in, for for heuristic purposes, to put it in kind of English language, Western terminology, there's a uh, uh, there's an in an Islamic kind of thought context, there tends to be this overarching concern with virtue ethics, that um, meaning that things are done and and arguments are made and conclusions are striven for in order to do good, and in that context, beauty is something that doesn't have to 
but there's a strong encouragement for beauty to conform to notions of virtue and goodness. Uh, and that's sort of what I was trying to bring at. So it's not just that we're supposed to stand there. So it's either that actually, you know, being good makes us better human beings just randomly, but also when we look at a wondrous object, we're supposed to contemplate it in terms of like, if it's a natural wonder, we contemplate it about, you know, it makes us think about God and the nature of God and God's relationship to, to creation. But, and if it's actually a human manufactured object, we, it might make us think, oh my God. And this is so commonly talked about with the pyramids and things like that, that you look at them and you think, oh my God, they were these amazing people and they made this and they have perished and turned to dust. What's going to happen to little old me? Um, so there's always this way in which um, in which kind of the concern with virtue comes in and it's not just kind of a, oh, look how beautiful it is and nothing more as a concern. So in the latter half of your book, uh, you discuss uh, science, what we today would call scientific disciplines such as alchemy and optics and so on and how they also uh, you know intersected and informed Muslim visual culture. So what are some of the major ways in which such disciplines as alchemy and optics uh, intersected with Muslim visual culture and understandings of image and perception. Could you give us a sense of that uh, uh, discussion in your book? Well, I mean, there are two things. One, uh, you're absolutely right. I mean, that it, these are, you know, they're viewed as scientific disciplines today. It's not entirely clear to me that they always were scientific in a way that was sort of disconnected from other, what we today would call religious disciplines. But, um, um, so yeah, I mean, I try to include every possible, so my purpose of including them at some level is to try and bring in every possible arena in which people would talk about, think about uh, resemblance theory, meaning how an object relates to that which it's supposed to represent or how appearance might accurately or inaccurately reflect essence. So this is like a major issue in the book, and I tried my best to be as comprehensive as I could. And so in that context, both optics and... Um, and uh, and alchemy are relevant. And the reason for that actually is, is so that in the case of optics, and this is not purely optics in the sense of physics, because it's also the psychology of vision, um, is, is really important because there is a, uh, again, in classical Islamic optics, which is Ibn al-Haytham is uh, the, the, the kind of the guy that people talk about. Uh, Ibn al-Haytham talks a great deal about perception theory, and there are two. One issue, of course, is is that in pre-modern notions of perception, there was actually a organic connection between an object and the person looking at it, which is very important for notions of resemblance. So you get a you would get a the the, the in, you when you actually look at something, it's actually a simulacrum of that object that gets embedded. It, it impacts your optic nerve. So it's not that you just sort of like these random rays, but these rays are actually like little already like models of that thing so that's one part of it and then also the psychology of perception which is obviously something we can't go into in great detail at all here and then the second thing is with alchemy alchemy is very interesting uh, for a variety of reasons but and i think it's severely misunderstood um in its place in intellectual history and by that i mean to say partly it's not a scientific discipline it's a more comprehensive discipline um and uh meaning it's not an empirical scientific discipline but in the case of alchemy, the issue really is is there's all, there's resemblance. There's a there's that there's no essence in a sense to a thing in, in a particular way. There obviously is an essence, but there's this notion of transformation of objects. So that if we take you know just the simplest simplest example of silver being transformed to gold, well, it's that is is silver looking like gold 
or is silver becoming gold? And are we trying to essentially make silver look like gold or make it become gold? Um, that difference. Obviously, alchemists are actually trying to make it become gold. They're not trying to trick anybody. So uh, in that sense, the kind of the notion of the essence and the appearance. So if actually silver becomes gold, does that mean that silver has no stable essence of itself? So these sorts of issues about the appearances of things and their relationship or what they really are uh, in, is something that I just figured I should include because they're important intellectual disciplines. So the next two chapters of the book uh, deal with the question of dreams uh, in Islam. And you know we can do a whole interview on these two chapters alone. But uh, can you tell us a bit about the range of ways in which medieval and early modern Muslim discourses of dreams uh, approach and conceptualize the question of mimetic representation, which seems to be the focus of your, of your discussion here? And why is that question significant uh, to the study of art perception in Islam? Well, it's because actually dreaming is one of the uh, most trivialized, arguably most trivialized um, arenas of um, vision, shall we laugh, for lack of a better term, in, in, um, in, I think, modern thought. And we, obviously, there's increasingly good scholarship on dreaming and even in the, Islam, in the study of Islam, but uh, a lot more has to be done with this seriously. And I, it's not just an issue of dreaming, but it's an issue of the whole notion of vision and kind of, um, extensiation in visions that is something that's very very important in pre-modern Islamic society and also in uh, fairly in more technical kind of Sufi environments in the present it's still very important um, so and the thing is is that for example for, for one thing um, uh, the notion that when you see something in a dream it's actually there is very 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 persistent in an Islamic context it's attributed to the prophet because, you know, when the prophet said that when he was dead, he'd be dead, people got really uh, anxious that he would no longer be around to guide them, etc. And he said, well, if you see me in a dream, it's as if I'm, I'm there. So there's already in kind of hadith this, this, this legitimation of the notion that uh, a, the presence of a person in a dream is as if they are really there. Um, now, again, this wasn't invented in hadith. This is a pre-Islamic notion of the nature of visions and dreams, or what you might call, you know, visionary dreams. Um, and so, for one thing, so the issue is, how does something that you see in a dream relate to the actual object? So this is actually fairly simple. If I see the prophet in a dream, it is the prophet. Um, uh, so that's one thing. It's like, so obviously it's not physically the prophet, and when I leave the dream straight, uh, you know, I can't touch him, I can't, you know, etc., etc. Um but it is the prophet, and what does it therefore mean for it to be the prophet in the sense that when I wake up, he's not there. Uh, but there's another thing. Dreaming is very closely related to essentially visual extensiation, by which I mean to say that having visions is just a complicated way of having visions. And, for example, in Sufism, and obviously Sufism as a technical kind of arena of religion in, in the Islamic culture in the past in particular, was huge. Um, in it's one of the things you actually do is you try and visualize your uh, Sufi master, your sheikh, your peer, as if the person is actually there, uh, so that you can in fact get instruction from a from a, a mush, from a Sufi guide, a murshid, um, who is either dead or is geographically very distant from you. And you actually try, you, you consciously make an attempt to make them appear, they appear, and it means they're actually there. And in some sense, their presence that way is 
are in some arguments is more real than if that person was physically there because you're actually getting them in their kind of essential idealized form. So that part that, you know, when you belong to a system that says, or you believe in a system that says that a visionary appearance of a physical person is the same as or better than that physical person being there physically, then what is the relationship between the person, their kind of idealized form and their physical form? It kind of begs that sort of question. And that's why I included uh, not just dreams, but also the whole notion of visions. So the next chapter of the book uh, engages with epigraphy, calligraphy, and monuments. And there are a couple of arguments that you made in this uh, you know, section of the book, which I found rather fascinating. One is that you pushed for approaching epigraphy and calligraphy uh, as images and icons, the ways in which they can function as uh, images and icons. And you also made a case for uh, ways in which, uh, you know, calligraphy or epigraphy on monuments uh, can play certain important roles, even in societies or where they would not be readable by the public, for example, Arabic inscriptions and you know, non-Arab context and so on. So could you uh, explain a bit these two lines of argument approaching epigraphy and calligraphy as images and icons and uh, the importance of the uh, religious and social role that they play uh, in different contexts? Okay, so, I mean, you know, the first point, of course, is is to start off with, one has to remember that actually scripts are, are symbolic, right? I mean, scripts don't, don't scripts don't have meaning. They're symbolic of, of words, of meanings. And also that frequently we don't read letter, letter by letter. We read shape by shape. Uh, this applies sort of generally. So, um, uh, you know, a skilled reader doesn't actually look at every letter and then mouth out the word and figure out what its meaning is. They actually see the whole kind of like, a, essentially they see a symbol state, shape. So for, to begin with, that writing is in fact symbolic and representational. That's just generally the case. But then there are two other parts of this. One is actually the use of writing to be representational. And the other is, as you mentioned, how writing would be representational in context where people couldn't read. Um, so um, in the first context, it's really the issue uh, which is, you know, an older and a longer context. There are so many examples, and I try and give a few of them, but there's so many sort of categoric examples of the ways in which Muslims have consciously used writings as a, 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 a um uh, writing as as kind of a symbolic representational system, rather an iconic system, rather than um, as a... Uh, a uh, kind of as words and and uh, again one of my favorites is uh, I mean and it's in the book it's um, the uh, one thing I find absolutely fascinating is is that in the in the 19th century 18th 19th 17th 18th 19th century in in the Ottoman Empire um, uh, there was a, there was a tradition of actually these pious books people have actually called them prayer books they're not really prayer books they're some sort of religious souvenir book. We don't actually know exactly what they are, but they're these extremely expensively produced books in which they have various little religious stuff in them and some of it's visual. And one of the category of things they have in there, and I have images of these in the book, but they have this category of thing in which um, they'll have, um, uh, so they'll have like a beautiful ornate, you know, done up in gold leaf and everything, calligraphic kind of book art um, panel, uh, circular medallion, which will say, um, you know, uh, it'll say, let's say, Abu Bakr. And then above it, and it'll say, be clearly legible that it's saying Abu Bakr. And then above it in very tiny uh, writing, uh, like normal writing, there'll be a, um, there'll be a caption that will say, Hada Ism Abu Bakr. I mean, this is the name of Abu Bakr. 
and uh, which is kind of like, you know, I can read. It says Abu Bakr. And so the Krashma, there'll be another one. There'll be this huge, beautifully ornate Umar. And then above it, will say, Hada is some Umar. And then you actually wonder why. And what it is, is obviously it's telling you, when you look at the big, beautifully ornate one, you're not supposed to think of it as reading. This is, so what they're telling you is, this is the image of the name of Abu Bakr or of Umar. So already you're actually using this thing iconically. This is actually related in a sense, and I try and make this point in the book, to the whole notion of textual portraiture in Islam. So um, again, when you get away from the sense of that resemblance actually means having a photograph of someone or a former portrait of someone, you can have many other forms of resemblance. So one of the things is, is that, you know, there's the hilya, which, well, Busiri had, there's the hulia of the prophet, the appearance of the prophet, which then in the Ottoman Empire became what you call a hilya. But there are many other traditions of these things. So the physical description of the prophet, um, the making sort of the calligraphic production of physical descriptions of the prophet or of other prominent Muslims um, became was very common. Um, which again is like you know, so what do I? Why do I need an incredibly ornate, almost portrait-like, a textual description of the prophet? So this is where, in a sense, you could say that writing is functioning uh, symbolically. Um, the, in the other case, it's much more complicated, and I honestly don't have a good answer. I tried hard, but I don't have convincing arguments for myself on that. It is that what does a person who cannot read or cannot read Arabic uh, do with a, um, when they see, like, you know, Arabic on a building or, or whatever? And, uh, you know, uh, and I think the simple assumption, and, I, I, you know, I made it as complicated and nerdy sounding in the book, but it's a fairly straightforward assumption, is that given the correct context or given a context that's a religious context, you assume that all um, such writing is, is religious. And I'm reminded, um, again, this is not in the book because it's totally anecdotal, Many years ago, I had a, a very good friend of mine um, who was in Bangladesh. He had to adjudicate a, um, a, a kind of a community scandal because um, someone had, uh, you know, and obviously in Bangladesh, they don't read the Arabic script so that, you know, anything that gets, you know, so that is an Arabic script, they would naturally assume is, is religious. So someone had, had burnt or thrown away or whatever, something that, that actually was thrown away because they still had it, um, had thrown away something in the Arabic script. And people got really mad because this became kind of, you know, in South Asian context, this is a blasphemy case. And in those, fortunately, they didn't kill the person. It was brought to community adjudication. And what it actually was, it was something very kind of mundane written in Urdu, you know, something as mundane as a shopping list. Um, but because no one in the community could read that script, they just naturally assume symbolically that everything that's in that script is in um, is is of religious significance. And unfortunately, it got settled very well. But again, I'm reminded from Pakistan. I don't know you how do you have this in your experience. But again, I'm speaking again anecdotally because it gives me kind of data for the past. I assume people weren't all that different at some level. Is that in Pakistan, a lot of people, the moment they see something written in Arabic, they actually assume that it's holy. Um, so it's extremely common. First of all, everyone, one thing is, is that everyone always takes a piece of writing and they, they see it on the ground normally. That actually, what am I saying normally? No one does it anymore. But if they see Arabic on a piece of paper, they pick it up and they'll put it on the top of a wall or in a high place because they can't read Arabic, but they just assume because it's Arabic, it's holy, which actually gives writing in and of itself rather than its content 
uh, symbolic value. And that's what I'm sort of arguing for is that, and then obviously much more complex argument about then how do you perceive it. But so I'm kind of arguing for the fact that in the appropriate context, when some, which means, you know, the side of a mosque, uh, if you saw, you know, like architectural epigraphy, meaning epigraphy in the building, you assume that it's religious uh, and you react to it with the assumption that it's ridiculous, it's religious, even though it could very easily be, you know, a dedication plate uh, or uh, a dedication plate saying, I repaired this after so-and-so did blah, 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 blah. Um, so uh, those are the categories. It's actually, it's a very, very complex part of, I think, uh, issue. And obviously, it's for me, it's more, it's a substantial part of that book. So, I mean, I can't talk about it um, uh, coherently in, in orally or in this kind of, uh, in a few minutes. But it's a, it is a very complicated issue and I think a very interesting one. Uh, so, Jamal, as we are approaching the end of our uh, time for this interview, uh, could you discuss with us and share with us uh, the kinds of things that you're working on these days and uh, the kinds of things that we can expect to uh, read from you and benefit from you in the coming few months and years? Well, n- never say months. <laughs> but yes, I'll say a couple of things and everyone please send me good wishes so that this gets done. So I'm working on two projects, two big projects. I'll leave this, um, the smaller stuff aside for a moment. Um, but the big projects are actually, I've been working for a while act- on, a, on a social history of the Mevlevi Sufi order, the Sufi order of uh, Jalaluddin Rumi, and actually by looking at certain turning points in uh, socio-religious turning points in the history of the, of the Mevlevi order, but also of, uh, you know, Turco-Ottoman society, uh, and seeing um, sort of events. So this is sort of like shortly after his death till the advent of true modernity in the Ottoman Empire, which is, let's say, the 18th century. Um, and uh, so that's one project. That's not the, f- I mean, I've been working for a while. It's a major project, but it's not the first thing coming up. What I'm working on right now is actually um, a book on childhood and representation uh, in um, in uh, modern Islamic society, which is, again, it's a visual and material culture type book. And uh, it focuses on data from uh, Turkey, Iran, and Pakistan, which are obviously places that I, I work on. And, um, and, um, and it's looking at, again, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's, it, it's, it's, so it's, in addition to essentially being about visuality and religion and all these sorts of things, it's actually a book in which I'm trying hard to, to make sense of how do we deal with them? How does emotion function in, uh, in the, in the use, not necessarily in the production, but in the use uh, or in the uh, in the production, in the sense of in the in the in the aspiration to how people might use it or how people might understand a visual image. Um, so this is something I'm working on right now as a book project. I'm right now trying to negotiate the contract. Getting color images in large numbers published in a book is a complex issue. So that's where I'm at. <laughs> you know. Okay. So Aisha's Cushion, A Religious Art, Perception and Practice in Islam by Jamal Ilyas, published by Harvard University Press in 2012. Uh, thank you so much, Jamal. Such a pleasure uh, reading this book and uh, chatting today about it. So thank you so much for this outstanding book and for your time today. Uh, really appreciate it. Thank you very much, Shirley, and thank you for the wonderful interview and the, and the wonderful leading questions. Thank you very much. So this was my conversation with Jamal Ilyas about his important new book, Aisha's Cushion, Religious Art, Practice and Perception in Islam. Please also join us next time for another episode of New Books in Islamic Studies. Until then, this is your host, Sher Ali Tareen, signing off. Take care and stay well. <laughs>